This is Bob Bledsaw Jr. of Judges Guild, and you're listening to Save or Die. Are we all ready? Mm-hmm. Save or die podcast at gmail.com. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Liz, just want to make sure you weren't going to rush off for just one more piece of cake. before. No, we... no. Okay. Not today. The carrot cake is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's Save or Die, number 97. DM Mike here with DM Jim. Greetings, programs. And DM Liz. Hi there. And we're here to talk about The Bottle City, written by Rob Kuntz, which is weird because when I first heard that, you know, Bottle City, the first thing that popped into my head was Candor. <laughs> it's true. This place is a lot more fun than Candor could ever think about being. Well, yeah, I suppose so. Hey, After and all. Hmm? I've roomed with Rob a couple times at conventions, and he would be the first person who want me to say that the proper title is The Original Bottle City by Robert J. Koontz. Sorry. There we go. Oh, so oh. now if I have any trouble, I will just ask Jim to elaborate. <laughs> oh, no, I just know he's a stickler for the proper names and stuff. Oh, okay. So, since uh, Black Blade is reprinting this limited edition, should we call it Black Blades, the original Bottle City by Robert G? I mean, at least on first reference, we could. Oh, okay. Cool. I guess we just did. Yeah, done and done. There you go. All right. Well, first, let's talk about what we've done in gaming since last time. Liz. Ah, okay. Well, continuing on with our grand adventure through the various crammed-together versions of the Temple of Elemental-slash-Existential-Evil, and following our encounter with the awful door, um, well, Trademark. Trademark, yes. Um, that, that door has been inspiring people to make some of their own versions, and quite frankly, it's been very frightening to me. Um, <laughs> anyway, well, uh, we were continuing on, um, going up the tower that the awful door had guarded the entrance to, and, um, well, one of the one of the rooms that we got to had this skeleton in robes shuffling a deck of cards. One might think our DM had listened to a prior episode. Oh, deck, um, deck of many things? Yes. <laughs> and take, take the party down? 
Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm skipping. I'm, skip, I'm, skip, oh. I'm skipping ahead. Excuse me. It was better. This is the this is the most epic deck of many things encounter that I personally have ever been a party to. Well, and we have another mead story. I, I have a question though. How many cards total? Twenty four, something like that. Something yeah, like that. Yeah, like twenty four or something. How how is it there is no existing tale or story of any player's encounter with the deck of many things that the void didn't come out? Well, it didn't come out. <laughs> um, it didn't come out in this one. Oh, but it was not for lack of trying. <laughs> Mead, Mead playing Kaylee, the elf. I I don't know if this was the first time she had ever run into a deck of many things or not, because the DM said, "Okay." How many cards are you pulling? And she heard it as what number card? So she said 13. She thought she was picking the 13th card. And I'm shouting going, the deck. no, no, no. And, and Chase is going, are you sure? Which should have been, you know, warning bells and flags and flares going up all over the place whenever the DM says, are you sure? Yeah, I mean, you don't need a universal translator to understand yeah. that means don't do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, you know, she's like, no, no, 13. I want 13. And by the time she figured out that what she had actually asked for was 13 cards drawn... You know, it was too late. He was taking her at her word after having asked if she was sure. So, Didn't he have an actual deck? Yes, he had an actual deck. And so she drew from the top of the deck, you know, every single one, and we all got to see, wow, that was a roller coaster. It, It was amazing that she didn't make it through all 13. I think it was card number 10, where she wound up drawing the dungeon card. I can't believe she got that far. I know. It was, it was we were surprising. just waiting for something horrid to happen, you know, like five cards in or something. And while she drew some bad ones, they weren't catastrophically bad. And so, you know, she just kept on going and going. And, you know, we're getting, you know, card number 10, and we're starting to think, is she going to make it through all 13 cards alive? And then 10 was Dungeon. It's like, wow. <laughs> but I have never, ever been in a game situation where someone drew that many cards before, you know, certain death and destruction occurred. And, and when it did go bad with her, it was like, gain 50,000 experience points. Next card, lose 50,000 yeah, experience yeah. points. You know, gain she a little a, follower. You know, now the loyal follower has become her mortal enemy. You know, <laughs> it's like she reversals of fortunes going on all over the place, and it's like, you know, she hasn't been soul jarred, she hasn't been obliterated yet. You know, is she going to make it through all thirteen? Uh, no, <laughs> almost. But then I drew three cards after her, so I got the three that she would have gotten. Interesting. And well, it was, they, go, they, they go back in the deck, though, don't they? No, not this time. No. Okay. So, my first card, I got 10,000 experience points. Second card, I lose 10,000 experience points. Third card, I got basically, once 
a one. Ch- I forget the card it was, but basically, I have a chance to alter fate once. That's a nice and card. Then, yeah, and then our magic user Jonathan pulls cards, and immediately I have to use it to save him and and Mead from the dungeon card by basically resetting everything to just before we started drawing. Yeah, and I like. I think. Jonathan had drawn a card that gave him three wishes, and his first wish he worded very, very badly. Um, actually, I think the first, the first card that he had drawn, he, he lost all his worldly possessions, and then the next card he drew gave him wishes. The one to and four so, wishes. Yeah, and so he, his first wish was to get his stuff back. But he didn't word it very well, and so everything started appearing in a pile next to him. In the tower. In the tower. Including our ship. Including our ship, because he was the captain of it, and so it was considered to be his ship. And um, so Mike used his card to basically go back in time before he made that wish and tell him, no, don't say it like that. And he was a lot more careful after that, and we were able to get everything back and get Mead back. So, <laughs> Are you guys familiar with a role-playing game called Maximum X-Crawl? No. Nuh-uh. There's, uh, it, it's been, been published before. There's a new version getting ready to come out for Pathfinder. But the premise of it is it's the 20th century in a world that evolved from medieval fantasy D&D and teams of people go on reality TV and compete for who can do the most rooms and beat up the most monsters. DM Chase's universe sounds like it's half reality TV show. I mean, <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> well, that's what you get when you combine a TSR module, a Wizards of the Coast 3E redo of that TSR module, and the Hackmaster version of that module <laughs> all together. Whee! Yeah, it's, it's been a ride. So that was our big thing, the, the deck fiasco. And my character did not draw any cards because she and I are both wusses. <laughs> you're, you're not a wuss. In a campaign, I see a deck of many things, it's fine. Yeah, and especially when... You know, we found out the cards were not going back. So after all those cards had been drawn, I knew my chances of getting the void were like you know eighty percent at that point. Or it's the like, devil, or no, something. thank yeah. you. You and, can keep the rest. And the wishes that would save you back from that are already gone. That's right. <laughs> it's like nope, nope, nope. Not going there. It's like we'll we'll just leave the rest of that deck alone. Thank you. How about you, Jim? That's a good story, and never in my life have I heard anybody draw 13 cards. Yeah, I mean, and live to tell the tale, no less. I mean, if, if, if Mead had said 10 and made it, it's just, you know, drop the mic, I'm done, I'm never gaming again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I win. Yeah. DM uh, Rick Hull uh, did me a big solid and came back from Gen Con with a playtest of a upcoming DCC adventure and I got to switch sides of the screen Saturday night and actually play but I talked about that on another podcast um, so I thought I would talk about a couple of uh, basic D&D old school related uh, things announcements I heard at Gen Con cool um, at the uh, Goodman uh, what's new at Goodman Games seminar they announced two uh, 
projects that will be coming out this year, and one of them I'm actually involved in in a very minor way, which is a deluxe hardback reprint, very similar in format to the Metamorphosis Alpha deal of uh, Grimtooth Traps. Uh, collecting cool. all the trap books in a large deluxe format, 505 traps. And I, wow. did, did you guys have those back in the day? I had the first one. I didn't get any of the others, though. I, I had a first one, and of course, with all my other old stuff, it was long gone. And uh, a good friend of mine, Bob Brinkman, just sent me a first printing of the first edition. I'm like, oh, there's my Ooh. old friend. <laughs> yeah, mine got stolen by a roommate while I was in the hospital. But just, I mean, good stuff for any flavor you play, but uh, written in the day when it was for OD&D, and uh, I think the first book came out before AD&D did, so, I mean. Yeah, it was a flying buffalo, wasn't it? Yep. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I, got cool. to ha- I got to have dinner uh, with and meet Rick Loomis and Ken St. Andre, which was an honor and very nice. Cool. Uh, and the other thing that, that is really OD&D related is, uh, along those same lines, a completely separate project that will be kickstarted as a deluxe hardback reprint that if it succeeds will be the first of a series reprinting uh old judges guild material um, Ooh, they, 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 goodman's getting gonna go judges guild then yeah and uh, uh bob bloodsaw uh the second was at the uh seminar to, to talk about it he and joseph have partnered up and uh joseph must have started sooner than i did because uh he talked about when I came along, the Judges Guild stuff was already in game stores, so we drive up from Kentucky to Cincinnati and grab some. But Joseph remembers back when you had to be a member of the Guild, and every so many weeks your mail showed up with a copy of the Judges Guild Journal, and whatever random thing was next in your subscription that you didn't know what was going to be till you opened the package. So he wants to do this book series very much that way. So life-size reprint pages of the Judges Guild journals, the actual journals, along with the adventures. Reprinted Sweet. exactly as they were. I forget it was the poster they had was Citadel of Fire, but that's not going to be the first one. I can't remember what the first one was. But uh, I mean, just I mean, if you're old school gamer, I, can you imagine when you're if that thing turns into a series, your bookshelf starting to stack up with these things oh, because yeah. they were printed on newsprint, even the not not just the journal, but the other stuff. And it, yeah, and it's tough to scan that stuff. I can tell you. So having some hardback copies would be nice. And yeah. I'm sure they'd have PDF versions available. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know that, but that's that's typical of Kickstarter stretch goals. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, cool, cool. So, I'm always up for seeing Judges Guild, even though Mike Battalato is probably screaming that he'll never get rid of that excess JG stuff in his garage <laughs> now. Well, uh, I think Bob Bledsaw said that the total number of publications under his dad was something like 240 separate publications so how many collect book collections that take forever to do so mike's yeah they even uh, speaking of janelle uh jakeway they even talked about some old dungeoneers too so oh cool being part of this so that sounds like we got some really cool classic stuff to look forward to from goodman yeah excellent all righty then well it's that time again do we have emails get down Save or die. Email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week I hope that it's from a female. Oh man. No, we have no emails whatsoever. I didn't think so. 
just kidding. Yes, we have, liar. <laughs> yeah, yes, we have emails. Um, if you like, I will even read the emails. All right, Liz, let us have it. Okay, um, our first email, which is actually an amalgamation of two emails that we received from David Lynch, starts off with, Greetings, sod, lady, and gents. The level limit debate is not something I want to get into, but I do have something to throw out there. <laughs> but I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Not, Everyone does sooner or later. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, anyway, he goes on to say, none of the groups I ever played in use the limits table, usually because we never went that high. Yep, that's kind of where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, people would plant roots at name level and become quest givers rather than adventurers. However, the concept that level limits could be used to balance humans against non-humans, starting front-loaded with special abilities, nagged at me. It seemed a tacked-on response that locked the door after the thief was gone. Humans received the standard XP bonus for exceptional abilities. This reflects their resourcefulness and adaptability. Non-humans do not receive this bonus. Humans are special this way. The non-human classes represent the typical versions of the races, what is usually encountered within their realms of, or traveling about. If a player wants to play against type and be a unique version of a race, like an elven cleric, for example, they use the listing for that class and apply a negative experience modifier to the character for racial abilities. I used the article on customized classes from Dragon number 109 to help determine the values of the various racial abilities, and then I found another article on Of Dice and Jin to refine the values. Elves add 50% and dwarves add 35%. It slows their progress but removes the glass ceiling, allowing non-humans and humans to compete on a more equal footing from the beginning. How can you live for a thousand years and let a human outclass you? Listening to the episodes about NTRPGCon and feeling really jealous. Sounds like that's where I need to go next year for some classic gaming. Yeah! <laughs> I know you have covered this topic, but I wanted to ask about finding other classic gamers and games. I walked into a local game store here in Spokane, I won't give the name because they do not deserve the attention, and asked about classic games or gamers playing pre-third edition D&D. The counterperson rolled his eyes and said, oh, you're one of those. Yes, I am one of those. <laughs> those what exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Our groups play Pathfinder or Warhammer. As for books, I think we have a used copy of Castles and Crusades somewhere over there. I it love really, the tone to your voice. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it really left me feeling flat. Their bulletin board was no help either. What are the resources for finding classic gamers? Are there localized resources? How would someone start a connecting point in their local area? Thanks for a great show, David Lynch. Thanks, David. Um, if there's anyone listening who's in the Spokane area of Washington who likes to play classic games, David Lynch is looking for people. Email him at – no, just kidding. <laughs> well, 
Uh, well, that was two thing, sets of questions. We want to do the first one. Yeah, let's do the first one. Well, I think the more he was the first one, he was just saying his view on how to do level limits. Um, and you know, that's a that's a way of handling it, especially for those who want to take someone like an elf and do something absolutely unique with him. Like, for example, I'll play a ranger with two scimitars, and, and, and <laughs> only he's a drow, really, and just really feels awful about it. what? That's not unique? Yeah. What, it's been done? Oh, yeah. I- I'm afraid so. Well, I mean, you know, if you go back to the little brown books, that's right in the rules. You can play a giant. You're just going to be, you know, this version of a giant that has, you know, certain limitations and levels and all that stuff. Right, right. And the whole idea was to, if you're going to play whatever, you know, you have to tone it down to the point to where it's roughly on the same level as a PC. Right. Uh, and at one point, you played a dwarf for a while, who instead of being your your typical dwarven fighter, he was a mage instead. Yep. Um, but all his spells were based on... Uh, what amounted to jewelry making, because that was his thing. Yeah, jewelry making, forging. Yeah, turn steel weaver. So, yeah, it's certainly a way of handling it if you don't want to go the, you know, racist class. Well, I like the system he came up with. I just prefer to ignore racist class. Well, I think it depends on the group. If you get a good group, you know, you can play that a little more fast and loose. If you have the type of players who are always looking for that edge... You know, it can be a problem. Not saying that that's a bad way to play. I mean, you know, as we're going to talk about with the original Bottle, Bottle City, it, you know, that was certainly how their, how Rob's players played. Well, you know, what's interesting tact- is a, a little cognitive thing just happened in my mind because I just said I prefer to ignore racist class, except racist class is one of the components of TCC, which me and my group happily play, and that's the truth. It's whatever okay. game. I mean, in, in DCC, I play it, my, you know, 20-somethings in my group play it, and we're all fine with racist class. But when we, I was thinking, I was responding as my 19-year-old self when we had the homes, you know, rules in front of us, and we just said, bullshit, get as many experience levels as you want. And like David said, um, normally, you know, when I played or when I ran, we never got high enough to even have to fool with level limits. Yeah, the, by the time it started becoming a problem, yeah, we were like, okay, well, I mean, and I'm accepting the 19, half the 1980s when we were in middle school and looking at 50th level characters. See, I never, ever did that. Well... You weren't a teenage boy. <laughs> I, I guess, but it's like, you know, normally... Not even close. Normally I get to seventh level and I start thinking about wanting to do a new character. Yeah. There's just something about playing in a really low-level campaign and where you don't have a lot of power immediately at your fingertips that just seems so much more satisfying to me. Well, let me ask you guys what what I think is an intelligent question, because we all just read uh, Rob Koontz's The Original Bottle City, which is full of this is what it was like back in the mid-early 70s when D&D started. I came along after that, around 79, which is roughly the same time you guys got in, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. 80, 81. Well, I know I've read lots of writing and even some from Gary himself about how the whole point of the level limits was to uh, keep demi-humans from taking over the campaign. There were, We ignored all that, and 
no demi-humans ever took over our campaign. So I'm almost wondering, after reading Rob's adventure with its historical context, if that wasn't if Gary wasn't responding to how the late Geneva players were min-maxing before anybody knew what min-maxing was. Maybe, or it may have been a reaction to dungeon and Dungeons and Beavers. You know, the way other people were playing it, which eventually led to AD&D because oh. it was not being played right. I Dave, mean, it could be either or. I don't know. Well, reaction to Dave Hargrave and the West Coast Gamers. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I, I mean, it could be. That's interesting. I mean, after all, that's what AD&D ended up being for it to begin with, right? A reaction to that. Right, right. Well, central set of rules for tournament play. Yeah. I mean, I know in, in our games, too demi-humans never took over either um despite all of the goodies that elves and stuff can give you um i generally tend to make human characters regardless even though level limits never comes into the equation you know i know if i play an elf you know i'm going to almost certainly be able to go as far as i want chase has pretty much said he doesn't fool with level limits for demi-humans in his campaign. But I tend to want to play humans anyway. Um, now, that being said, when I first got the game and I was 11 or 12 years old, my very first character was an elf because I was a girl and I was 11 or 12 years old and I liked elves. But <laughs> but I don't play them all that often anymore. Or at most, I'll play a half-elf and mm. get all get all angsty about not being part of either race, really. Yeah. I mean, not to the extent of, oh, what's-his-head in the Dragonlance books. Tennis-level tennis moping. No, nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's, it's a good role-playing opportunity. So Okay. Well, as for the second part of his letter, I'm not coming to the defense of the guy who was running the the shop there but <laughs> especially back in the 80s it was always my experience when i went into a game store it seemed like no matter what game i wanted or asked about the guy behind the counter always rolled his eyes and oh you play D. we all play rune quest now or <laughs> Com- comic book guy in the simpsons worst edition ever Which, yeah yeah exactly it's like no matter what It's dumb. They're playing a much superior game of blah. But that being said, as adults, that sort of treatment does get old very quickly. I had his exact experience, virtually verbatim for what he put in the letter just three years ago. (laughs) Three, maybe four years ago. I I just started to get the itch after a long layoff from the hobby to get back into things. And I kind of knew I wanted to play something old school flavored because I had played fourth edition and didn't like it at all. So I go looking for it. And I started at the big store here in town and pretty much got that reaction they're like well we play pathfinder and i think we have a castles and crusades book over there <laughs> a castles and crusades was I, it used yeah i i don't i i don't know and that's that's how i ended up at gateway games and dm todd because in that context that there you've got a smaller store where the owner himself is into old school role playing and it's not like that's all they do they play pathfinder they play hero clicks you know they play all the modern stuff too but he also as a store owner took it upon himself to he's the dm todd's the guy who created the retro uh cincinnati retro D league and he did me a big favor before i knew i needed it because 
a bunch of those players from the Retro D&D League are now players in my, you know, old school themed game I run. And, you know, they're, they're already immersed in it. And what's great about that crew is they don't think in these same terms of either or. They're just as happy playing Pathfinder the Pathfinder way, you know, one night a week and then playing Dungeon Crawl Classics, you know, on Saturday nights. Which, truthfully, is as old school as you can get because I remember back in the late 70s and 80s, you know, we'd play Give Anything a Try, you know, a new game. Oh, play it. You know, we might like it. We might not. Um, eventually, we always seemed to drift back to D&D, at least for fantasy. But, you know, we tried Fantasy Trip, Melee Wizard, Rune Quest, Chivalry and Sorcery, uh, Fantasy ship. Hero. Huh? Time Ship? Uh, <laughs> that was a time travel game. That wasn't a fantasy game. Nevertheless. Well, even though that... Now that I just think of what I just said, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean. But uh, Apolo- apologies to any timeship fans out there. <laughs> Don't send us hate mail. Send, send your timeship uh, emails to the Dead Game Society. <laughs> hey, that's a yeah. game they could cover. I bet that is a train. I they bet could. there's not I'd, a lot of people who talk about timeship. I'd so. be happy to talk about timeship on their show if they'd like me. But anyway. Okay. So, so unless, well, unless how do we actually help him? Yeah, yeah, that's they, what I was thinking. Yeah, most of the resources that I'm thinking of are basically all online. Um, mm-hmm. And oh crap, what is the name of that um, forum where basically you can get on there and you know just say I'm in this area, I'm looking for a game. Meet up. Yes, meet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the meetup. Um, I don't yep. know how big Spokane is, but Cincinnati has a bunch of those meetup groups, and they all have their their store, or their place where they gather. Yeah, you can also go to places like Dragon's Foot, OSR Gaming. Uh, I don't know if Knights and Knaves does anymore. The Save uh, or Die Google Plus page that Vince created without telling us and then handed to us. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, indeed. Go there and say, "What's up, Spokane? <laughs> I want a game." Yeah. All of those tend to have a looking for gamers, and of course, those would be ideal because odds are, if they're they're reading it, they've they're at least old school friendly. Yeah, uh, so. and you might find people. They might not be in the Spokane area, but maybe you know, I'm only twenty minutes away. I'm willing to drive out there. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the www.meetup.com was um, what I had initially been thinking of because I know. That was kind of how we met up with Chase. Was it through Meetup or was it through Dragon's Foot? Actually, it was through Dragon's Foot. Yeah, but he was using Meetup as well. Yeah. Um, it's not like Tyler, Texas is a bustling metropolis, right? <laughs> yeah. They're bigger than they used to be, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so give those a shout out if anyone uh, – is in the Spokane, Washington area. You can write us. We'll forward it to Dave Lynch if he wants us to. So, you know, whatever we can do to help the OSR grow. Yeah, yeah. If nothing shakes loose by the next time we record, we'll turn this into a contest. <laughs> first first Spokane gamer that wants to play old school D&D with David Lynch, we'll give him a PDF of something. Woohoo, yes. That sounds so, like a plan. Oh, speaking of contests, um, I do want to mention, you know, thank everyone who's been 
you know, signing up to, you know, be a fan of the Save or Die Facebook page. Um, we've gotten up to 469 fans on the page. Excellent. And, and I'm really looking forward to being able to give out those 10 sets of terrain from Fat Dragon Games when we reach 500. So keep telling your friends. If you still haven't signed up to be part of the page, you know, get on there and do it because we're getting really close. We're only 31 people away from being able to pick out 10 people and hook them up with some terrain sets. And thank you once again to Tom Tullis and Fat Dragon for donating those sets for the cause. Yes, thanks much. Now, everybody who's a Facebook fan, go over to Google Plus and join the Save or Die community. Um, we don't have terrain sets for the Google Plus page, but we will f- we will find something to give you guys if we get 500 people over there, too. You, you can win the bragging rights that we have more members in our community than Roll for Initiative. <laughs> And the and the and the prize will be Vince will set up a Google Plus page for you. <laughs> no, no, I am kidding. I am kidding. Wait, all together now. We love you, we love Vince. You, Vince. Yeah. <laughs> next email before we kill again. Okay. Our next email is from J V West, and hey. he says. Thank you, Sodcasters, for ruining my bank account. You're welcome. You're welcome. After listening to number 90, there's yet another product that must have my money. Whisper and Venom box set, you will be mine. And for the record, my current Labyrinth Lord campaign features not one, but two gnome PCs. I bet Mike would love to join in. Later, JV West. I'm always willing to help out with a good gnome extermination. <laughs> I should say. Oh, is that not what he meant? I, I don't think that's what he meant. Oh, oh. And I think I think Topus is going to kick your ass one of these. <laughs> you know how in the CNN story they'll always say if the story's about CNN somehow, you know this blah blah blah. I in yeah. f- in the interest of full disclosure, I need to uh, disclose that uh, the uh, owner of Whisper and Venom, Zach Glazer, does pay me in baseball caps. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw your your lesser known face, your your lesser known baseball cap on your on your head in that photo of you with Steve Chenault. <laughs> very, well, I, very good product placement there. And Zach's like, oh, that one's starting to get worn out. I need to send you another one. And he is. <laughs> this, so you got one for daily wear and one for Sunday best. <laughs> the space for rent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, glad we could help reduce your bank account slightly, JV. And I'm sure Lesser Gnome thanks you as well. All righty. Any more? Yes. Ooh. Well, our next email is from Shannon Ferguson, Angry Monk. Hey, that guy owes me money. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, how's it going, eh? (laughs) Eh? Eh? (laughs) Canadian. (laughs) Just listened to your last podcast on being classy, and a listener emailed you about your suggestions for initiative. He was going to create his own version for determining initiative, but, I believe, that wheel has been invented. In the Judges Guild Ready Reference Sheets, on page Ooh. J5, there is a small chart called Weapon Priority. 
The chart takes into account weapon length, casting time, armor encumbrance, monster speed, and dexterity, all in the space of a cue card. I've included a copy of the chart for your ease of understanding. Hope that helps. I look forward to every Save or Die episode, and you never disappoint. Take care, the Angry Monk. <laughs> Everybody, Thanks, Angry Monk. Everyone who listens to this podcast should get on eBay and go get yourself a Judges Guild Ready Ref Sheet set because of all the things that are expensive and hard to find, they're everywhere and they're cheap. And uh, Mike, Bad Mike has got a bunch of them. He's, he's half of the sales on eBay right now. Yeah. yeah. And it's got some rather interesting tables on there that you won't know you need until you see them. <laughs> I'd go nowhere without mine. So that's anyway. not going to break anybody's bank account. That's going to be like seven or eight bucks. Yeah, I mean, I've even seen them for like like at Noble Night for three. You know, it's it's not a bad deal at all. Yeah, but yeah, we- the the chart is really cool. Um, you get all kinds of information on it, and it's it's like a little. It's almost like a D twelve chart. You know, and. You know, the higher total moves first, so you have it from 1 to 12, you know, going down. And basically, you know, depending on what you're doing, you know, there's a there's a number next to it. And <laughs> if, so, if you're the reading, higher the number, you know, you're going first. If you're reading a scroll, you're last. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and if you're just looking at something, you're going first. Um <laughs> But yeah, then they have the adjustments for your armor. Um, so Especially say, if you're looking at a Medusa, the DM will be happy to let you go first. That's right. So yeah, say say you were doing missile fire, which is a nine on the chart, and you are considered to be wearing plate and encumbered. You would take away a number from that. So instead of nine, you would now be eight. Um, and so someone with a higher number could go before you. Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of neat stuff, and it's very compact. So pretty darn cool. Yeah, wish we could print it with the show notes, but, you know, it's technically copyrighted, so we can't. But as Jim noted, you can get them cheap. So buy a pack today. Yes. Lots of super cool information on there, not just that. I mean, in yep. a lot of ways, the ready ref sheets are an OD&D uh, judge's screen. Yeah. Yeah. Before there was one, it was just a booklet of stuff you, know, you could have on hand. Cool, cool. All right. Okay. And we have one last email from Joshua DeSanto. And he says, good evening, Sodders. Evening. This is, this is Joshua from Genius Loci. Just wanted to drop a line and thank you all for the review and the discussion of my two-page adventure. It was very informative, and I promise that I will fix those two issues in future updates to the adventure. Ah, the joys of modern technology. To answer a few question-like comments, I will say, one, my name is pronounced Joshua. Actually, that is my name. A long time ago, the S didn't take when creating a forum account, and the name stuck. Ah, so the point emerges. (laughs) Um, Two, I had recently finished reading Cold Days when I started both my blog and the company, such as it is. This episode's Dresden Files (laughs) reference brought to you by Joshua DeSanto. And three, those children are, in fact, the apprentices you were looking for. 
Once again, thank you all for the wonderful review. I listened to it with my wife, and she yelled at me for squeezing her hand too tight while we were listening. (laughs) Happy trails and good gaming, Joshua. Thanks, Joshua. Oh, what a nice email. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be uh, reviewing your second uh, small adventure in an upcoming episode soon. So, so Save or Die, the, pod- the podcast that informs you about classic D&D and enhances your marriage. <laughs> You're being, welcome. Ye- although being yelled at, I'm not sure if that's an enhancement. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she forgave you. All right. Do we have a voicemail? Yes, we do. Let's hear it. Let me play that sucker for you. Hello, Sodcasters. It's DM Kojo. Just giving a call to ask you a brief question. I recently ran my eight-year-old son, Chase, through Keep on the Borderland. And early on in the adventure, he went to the Cobalt Lair. And without giving too many spoilers away, let's just say he charmed a Cobalt and uh, that he named Rothar. And the Cobalt ended up joining the party. And lo and behold, through some nice critical hits and things like that, the Cobalt has survived uh, quite admirably and to the point even where my son has uh, been feeding him potions of healing to keep him alive because uh, he likes him so much. So I ended up kind of on the fly turning him into kind of a fighter like that. Uh, there's no specific rules for that in Classic that I've ever come across, but I wondered about your thoughts or experiences with this. Have you ever allowed players to uh, control a monster henchmen or NPCs that became part of the party? So thanks. Keep up the great work. Talk to you later. Thanks, Gojo. <laughs> yeah. I think wow. I think that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. And the, the podcast that will also help your parenting skills. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Bring the kids up right. Um, I've had it happen a couple of times before, never with a kobold, oddly enough. Um, but I've had parties who managed to recruit or individual orcs or that sort of thing. Oh, we had a goblin. That game oh, yes. that George was running for us. Yeah, yeah, there was that. <laughs> Take me with you, please. <laughs> I'll feed your horses. I won't even eat them. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Please! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was an AD&D game, but remember I actually had a skeleton lord lurk after you for a while. Your yeah, party. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a fun set of adventures. Yeah. Nothing like going into town with a skeleton lord riding with you to make the, resi- make the inhabitants... See you in a whole new light. Yeah. I'm a good cleric, really? really? God, I'm trying to think. Oh, uh, DM Marcos was running us through some 5th edition playtest module that's got Huggy or Huggles the Goblin in the middle of the thing, and we picked him up and adopted him as a party member. Try getting through a simple you know, tavern encounter with a goblin along. <laughs> By the time that thing was ended, half of us were like down in the jail. Wow. <laughs> you see, if you'd been to the city-state of the Invincible Overlord, nobody would have batted an eye. But no, I think that's fine. I mean, you know, it's if they play it right, they get the reaction right, they treat the – and why shouldn't an NPC, you know, a monster not behave the same way as an NPC? Unless, you know, you're dealing with something that's 
naturally homicidally evil. Not um, to mention, I think... This is my friend Bob, as, the mind flayer. <laughs> I think as a parent with, you know, young children, you know, I think it's great to encourage your kids to think of a way other than, you know, always killing stuff. And so, you know, I, I think it's just really cool that, you know, his little boy even thought of the idea, hey, maybe, maybe I can make a friend instead of, you know, just slicing him up. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're so cute at that age before they get to I kill him and loot the body. That's right. So you know you should you should appreciate that while while you have it. You know, try to try to encourage that. Yeah, around age eleven or twelve, that'll go away. <laughs> I waste them with my crossbow. <laughs> All righty then. Well, thanks for the emails and voicemail. If you want to send us a voicemail, you can at nine four zero five three six thirty seven sixty three three sod, or email at. The Savor Die Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Send us more stuff because Liz is doesn't have enough to read, really. <laughs> That's right. Bury me in emails. <laughs> I'll never never be seen again. Dun dun dun. But you'll be heard. Barely. All right. <laughs> well, before we head over into our regular stuff, is there any uh general announcements or internet curiosities anyone's hit? Uh, I found a couple that I'd like to mention, but I was going to say, I'll, well, my thing about the the contest. Fat Dragon, yeah, the contest, Fat Dragon Games. I already mentioned that earlier, so I'm good. Jim, ah, Saber Die Podcast has a new Google Plus page. Please come join us. No, well, I would just like to mention. I've been told about it. I haven't actually read it myself, but apparently Saber Die, as a podcast, got a shout-out in Knights of the Dinner Table, number 210. Oh, that's right. And I'd like to thank Jolly and the guys at Kenzer for that. We appreciate it. Um, we have it on reserve at our comic shop. We're going to hopefully pick it up this week so we can read it. And I can enjoy their Lost Games Safari issue for Aftermath by Fantasy Games Unlimited. The most mathematically complex game I had ever encountered. We anyway, played it. We played it once. <laughs> that's usually how most people played it. You know, it, it great source material, but the rules made my head hurt. And the other thing I'd like to mention is uh, Doctor Snail and uh, friends over at Briark. Briark no, Briark.org, we'll have the address in the show notes, is uh, are doing a project they call Project on the Borderlands. And basically what they're doing is taking the original B2 Keep on the Borderlands and inviting people to submit various small wilderness and maybe small lair encounters and such like to convert B2 into a small campaign setting. So if you're interested and want to submit... Head on over. Boy, I just lost old school cred because apparently I, I tried to look it up and I can't spell Briark. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll put that in the show notes for me too. <laughs> B-R-E-E-Y-A-R-K. And they got the urge, apparently this was a project that had kind of been languishing for a while, but they got the urge to pick it up again after seeing the Gen Con photo that we had put on the Save or Die Facebook page 
of a group of people playing B2 using the basic rule set at Gen Con. And that got a discussion started, and they're getting back in there again. So let's help them get it to the finish line. I know I intend to submit something, but whether they accept it or not, I don't know. But I'll come up with something. Holy, and I- Holy mother of God, they've got a 3D color uh, SketchUp model of the keep. Woo-hoo. Yeah, I, I envy that. Wish I could see it. But anyway. All right, well, let's take a break, and then we'll head into our top five of... Black Blade Publishing's The Original Bottle City by Robert J. Kuntz. The Save or Die Top 5 In 5, 4, 3, 2, Top 5, the somewhat controversial segment where we talk about our five favorite things of a given topic or product in this case. I I wouldn't go with controversial. Contentious, maybe. Contentious. Okay. (laughs) That sounds good. First impressions, everybody, before we start getting to the numbers. Well, I rather liked it overall. Um, It certainly does have an old school feel and flavor to it that does put me in mind of some of the old Judges Guild modules that I like so much, um, where, quite frankly, anything goes in some areas. And so, yeah, on the whole, you know, my first impression of it is this is a pretty cool little adventure. Uh, we have the we spent about half our time looking over the original original bottle city, the limited five hundred that uh, Rob Kuntz sold back in two thousand seven, and then the other half on Black Blade's planned republish. Or have they already released it? Oh yeah, it's in stores. It is in stores now. Yep. Okay, good. Um, it just has some you know typos corrected. I believe the hit dice have been modified to D8s or class-specific, whereas the originals were all D6s because it was OD&D. If I understand correctly, the maps and images are literally the images of graph of the graph paper? Yes. Do I understand I, that right? <laughs> this is how old school and, and, I mean, brutal this game is. There aren't just secret doors in the dungeon. The actual print product has its own secret door because... I bought it uh, at Gateway Games. DM Todd got them in, and it came in a poly bag like a comic book would. So I just open the tape, take it out. I'm reading through it, and I'm going, where are the maps? There aren't any maps. And uh, I had to email John Hirschberger and go, I think I got a misprint. Were, were the maps supposed to be inserted in the bag, and I just missed them? And he said, we put multiple card backings behind there. Check and see if the maps aren't between the card backs. And what ah. I assumed was one card back was four with these beautiful uh, giant color maps that reproduce uh, Rob's hand-drawn color pencil dungeon map. Sweet. So You just failed your, your detect secret doors roll the first time. So they're beautiful, and I'm an idiot who missed his roll. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, um, let's, I guess, head into the top five then. And we'll start with Jim this time. I, I, I do want to say a little bit about the uh, – go back to the general thing. This this, oh, okay. this this is not for the faint of heart or wuss of butt. You may think you know <laughs> how to play old school, but this would be challenging for me to run. 
and it's like a level 10 uh, character funnel. It's a meat grinder. I've never read anything that I ever caused me to stop and think, wow, this makes two Maharas look like a party. Yeah, it's got its moments, certainly. I mean, which to me is beautiful and glorious, but I was kind of interested in, in if you and Liz, if it, if it took you back a step or you rolled with it. Um, there's some lethal stuff in here, and quite frankly, if I were to use this, you know, running it myself, I'd probably tone some of it down a little. Not all of it, but there's some stuff that I think I would you know, I'd probably I'd wuss out on some stuff. Kinder, uh, gentler door. Yeah, I'd have a kinder, gentler door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, some of the subsequent generations of gamers from us balk at even anything that involves a save or die situation. This thing has got situations that are save or die, and it's got situations that are no save. You enter the room, boom, this happens. Just the die part. Yeah, yeah, yeah just the die part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Truth is, you know, it's got a couple of interesting encounters in it, but on the whole, I don't know that I would use this. It's, I think it is definitely a product of its time and its gaming group, and I think you'd have to have a very special gaming group who'd be willing to play through this as written. Um, if I were going to sell and market it, I would, I would spin it as, if you're interested in the history of the hobby, I mean, there's a John Peterson aspect to just owning and reading this that's glorious. And then I challenge your DM and your group to try and run this. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I did like about it is a lot of – not all of them, but a lot of the encounters have a commentary by them where Rob reminisces about what he was thinking at the time of making that particular encounter and on occasion what happened when the Lake Geneva guys went through it. Those things were were solid gold because you're talk. He's he's making little references to the original group of players that went through this, which I am I'm dating. Must have been about 1976 because he refers to Jim Ward as the new player to the game <laughs> in that group. If not 1974, yeah, it, so definitely somewhere right on the edge there. Um, but you kind of if Jim played in this, you kind of see where he gets it from in Metamorphosis Alpha. <laughs> oh yeah, oh you yeah. You better be on your toes and be thinking all the time. Well, I did like there was one section in the back where they were talking about the specific prizes that were keyed to individual players, and you know, because I, I don't really know, we don't know what the player characters were, but it's like he gives the player's name, like Dave Arneson, Brian Bloom, Don Kay. Oh right, what, what they the, what they got out of the place with, right? And it kind of makes you go. Why would he want? Why did Rob think that was what he wanted? That's kind of weird. <laughs> like that scroll of elasticity. Like, okay, why would you want that? I don't <laughs> know. I sense an in joke in here somewhere. I uh, well, I, that your reactions make sense, and and I, but I just wanted to kind of get get my feet planted because to me this is all just glorious. Yeah, yeah. Um, I enjoyed reading it. It's it's. Even got a couple of things I might use. This would be literally – it's kind of like Tomb of Horrors in that it's one of those things you get a group together specifically because they want to experience that old you know, 1974, 6 type meat grinder dungeon. 
You know, you don't spring this on a long-running campaign, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, if, if I were to run this for my group, I'd have them roll up two or three ninth to 12th level characters, because they're going to choose oh, yeah. through a few. Yeah, I think so. All right, well, number <laughs> five, Jim. Now that I completely derailed the podcast, uh, my my number five in the top five was a delicious little room called the Chamber of Decisions, uh, which is exactly what I was just talking about. Each player, you step in the room, each player is instantly geased, no save, to walk down one of two passages, and then there's a table of you roll a d10, and this is what happens to you as you walk down those passages, and uh, I mean... It's crazy stuff. Uh, gain 50,000 experience points. Uh, save versus poison gas or die. A nine-hit die fireball explodes in your face. I mean, and he even mentions in the uh, little sidebar notes like you were talking about that uh, this was uh, designed in the dungeon prior to the deck of many things and in some way in, uh, a predecessor to that. Only a mandatory deck of many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't get... <laughs> You don't get a choice. <laughs> Sorry, Chase. You only get to walk down two halls, not 13. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Liz? Well, my number five is, as we were speaking of earlier, the commentaries all throughout the adventure. Um, the commentaries alone, in my opinion, make this worth buying and reading. You know, Even if you decide you never want to use any portion of this against your players ever, you know, just reading the little commentaries, the history, the background, you know, it's, it's worth it just for that. Um, I, I really enjoyed going through that and, you know, getting a, a little peek inside of what was happening, you know, when this was first being, you know, created and Rob Kuntz was running it. Including so, a lot of context about why this dungeon is so brutal because those players had already been everywhere and seen everything, presumably <laughs> since he was co-DMing Greyhawk, you know, under him and Gary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was one of the commentaries, I think it was early on in the book, but I can't remember which one specifically. But anyway, he was pointing out that at this time, you know, it, it was more tricks, traps, inflicting things. that It was on the player Whereas nowadays it tends to be on the character in that they his gaming group didn't spend their time, you know, well, I'm playing a wizard, an elven fighter magic user from the Greywood. How would they react to this? No, I'm Jim Ward and this is how I react to things or Brian Bloom or whoever. And since this is a whole bunch of miniature war gamers, they got very tactical. And so... Rob wrote that he himself had to then make counter tactics, uh, anticipating what they were going to do. For instance, he I, I recall in one of them he mentions that Jim Ward was notorious for pushing any button and pulling any lever he can. <laughs> Which again explains a lot of his metamorphosis alpha world. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, because it's the place is full of buttons you shouldn't and, push, and, but you and, will. <laughs> and, then, and then he claims he is puzzled by the fact that we, as players in his convention games, will go <laughs> and just push things. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> well, anyway, my fifth is the art gallery, which <laughs> Kuntz, uh, apparently developed more in his module Mage of, Maze of Zayn. But it was kind of a proto 
setting here with the various portraits. And it was the, you know, you go to a portrait, you can be drawn into it, something weird will happen or something comes out of it or that sort of thing. And the one I liked was um, the witch. What was her name? Atsit and her giggler. He uses some uh, Empire of the Petal Throne monsters in here too, but don't worry. They, the book has the full stats and everything on them. I, I think it's pronu- it would be pronounced Asat, but, but thanks, to my de- dyslexia, all I, thanks to my dyslexia, all I can see is asshat. Asshat <laughs> is it. Well, before you're done fighting this woman, that may be how you feel, but <laughs> anyway, that's my number five. Number four, Jim? Are we going to go back and talk about the art gallery more, or are you already done? Oh, I'm done. Unless one of y'all want to say something. Um, Well, we've got to make our obligatory Doctor Who reference. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've got that on my list. Um, Yeah. I'll I'll save my Doctor Who reference for when I get to it. See, I'm over-anticipating again. Somebody (laughs) somebody smacked me. Uh, My number four is the uh, one of the easier rooms, I think when considered in the totality of this work, but you walk in the room and there are six Balrogs waiting on you. Six type, I'm sorry, Balors. Six type, six demons. And then, and the first sentence of the room is, uh, as they three engage in, three engage in melee and the others immediately start summoning other demons to assist them. <laughs> <laughs> Which at type six means just about anybody up to and possibly including a demon prince. <laughs> I mean, that really is funny when he's talking about the level of challenges, 9th to 12th level parties. They consist of four PCs minimum against six Baylors. <laughs> Try more like 10 PCs minimum. <laughs> like, no, no, you'll be fine. You just need three other friends. Go on in there. Go on. <laughs> but if you somehow manage to smoke them and live to tell about it, you only... You get 30,000 gold pieces worth of gems and a belt of emoliation that allows you to suddenly have Baylor powers. You can catch fire and your weapons catch fire, and you now you're inflicting. Basically a flaming aura. And when I read about that belt, my first thought was Jonathan. Jonathan. Yep. <laughs> yes. Oh, Jonathan needs to have that right there. Oh, my yeah. gosh. You, you yeah, should have a ring of fire, fire assistance. Well, see, there you go. You should talk Chase into running this for you next. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Liz. Okay. Um, well, my number four, um, there's an encounter which is simply titled Efreet Picture. And it is a huge um, picture of a lone Efreet, uh, six feet high, three feet wide. And if you go into the room that the picture is in, um, it's some. It's somehow able to magically sense if you are hostile to the room inhabitants. Um, if if you are and you get within a certain radius of the picture, then it starts, um, you know, breathing, you know, shooting fire at you, um, all kinds of stuff. You know, the Ifrit itself will even manifest at some point. Um, Holding a big scimitar. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I've seen art just, for that somewhere before. Yes, <laughs> you know it's 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 such a it's such a a bow to the um, Dungeon Master's Guide cover that Dave Sutherland did, and I just thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, and your guys are the three little fellows getting smoked by it <laughs> at the bottom. 
<laughs> Again, only an Efreet from the Elemental Plane of Fire. One of the minor encounters in this dungeon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Scary, huh? My number four is, I guess, a subtle thing, but you rarely find it in dungeons nowadays, is he reiterates in here that there are a lot of empty rooms. You know, the original Brown books usually, you know, tended to say, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like one out of every seven to ten rooms should have an encounter in it. The rest should be empty. Right on. And you never see that. You always get, you know, it's like people living next door. It's like, you know, a Hotel Six of Death. And, <laughs> you know, like that. Would you like to encounter behind door number one, door number two? Or door number three. What about door number four? That's the ice machine with wow. ice devils in it. Ah, we'll leave a pyre on for you. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Leaving a freed out for you. <laughs> Oh, that was good, Liz. <laughs> okay, I stole that from Mike because he said that before. But <laughs> actually, and I stole it from Mystery Science Theater. So you know, <laughs> full disclosure here. <laughs> Not nearly as cool as people think. Anyway, so I like that the way he pushed that. You know, the idea of there's room. You know, room after room, and it's empty. You know, empty. Oh, what's in here? Six Balrogs. Ah! <laughs> oh, dude, see, you've triggered me now. I'm already writing it in my head. <laughs> Motel 666. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they even left a candy on our pillow. That's not a candy. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> number three, Jim. Oh, uh, my number three uh, is all the way at the back, and it's really just a uh, sort of postscript to the entire adventure called Personal Bottles. Apparently, uh, back when Rob was running this for the Lake Geneva Gamers, they liked the style of play so much that they uh, he awarded each of them their own personal little bottle city deal that the individual character could visit whenever he just felt like I, you know, I'm uh, you, you know, like where I'm stuck and I've got 200 XP still to go to the next level. I'll just jump in my own bottle for a while and have a quick a quick encounter. Yeah. I, okay, that's that awesome. sounded bad. You know what I meant. Well, I mean, sure, re- sure. reading Rob's stuff, it wasn't you know a cakewalk. But I just love the idea that of, of of all the characters were running around with their own little personal bottle, they could jump in any time they want. And you know, I think more PCs would use that than we would think on first blush. I mean, how many times have you heard, Liz? Yeah, I'm only a thousand XP away. <laughs> I'm only eight hundred XP away from the next level. Hop in the bottle. Fight and, a giant. And it's very endemic of what you talked about at the top of the show where it's just uh, – it's old school think, not new school think. I mean there's there's no realism or play balance or – you know, it's just cool. Yeah. Crazy and cool. But yeah, that was also the one where they had the list of um, – the ver- that he actually gave a list of the players and what they got out of it when they defeated their – Their opponents, yeah. Their opponent, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Jump in the bottle, come out with a scroll of permanent elongation. Oh, that seems, that seems like a good deal. I'm Plastic Man. Well, it depends on what part of you is getting elongated. I mean, it's like your head. I suppose you could use it to look around corridors. or well, But how, only one leg, you know? How, how perfect is it that Jim Ward came out of his personal bottle with a scroll with three legend lore spells on a scroll? Yeah. <laughs> That's just yeah. perfect. I mean, I half expect it to be like three scrolls of meteor swarm or something. <laughs> 
Jim. <laughs> oh, I'm reading here. Mike Menard came out of it with a ring of silence. Apparently, the charges are gone in that now. But I'm ching. Sorry. No, you're not. You're right. <laughs> you're right. I'm not. <laughs> All right, Liz. You're three. Okay. Um, I'm I'm going to go kind of type geek here um, for my number three. Um, and as Mike mentioned before we started up, up on this, we started going through the Pied Piper Publishing version of the module before we were able to get a PDF of the Blackblade version. And for the most part, they are exactly the same in you know content except for changing up of hit dice and stuff. But I noticed looking at the two, um, the... Pied Piper version had a much tighter letting between the lines of the text, and they used a sans-serif font predominantly, and Rob Kunz's commentary was in a serif font. Um, the Blackblade version gives you more space between your lines of text, um, and the serif and sans-serif usage is reversed. So you have predominantly serif, and the commentary is in a bold-faced sans-serif. Um, and I just wanted to say that I think the Blackblade version, the decisions that they made, you know, to change, you know, contributed to making the text more readable. Um, I had an easier time looking at the Blackblade version than I did the Pied Piper version. So that's my number three. Custom well, designed for old eyes. Well, and you need that because the uh, writing style Rob's using here is also very old school, too. So there's not a lot of flowery flavor text. It's all straight to the point and, mm -hmm. and dense with information. So you need all that letting and kerning. No, as found in the halls of riboflavin fingleflower. <laughs> well, Liz, I've got a question for you. I mean, mm -hmm. you do layout and design. I do layout and design. What's up with this thing in old school and retro clones where they want to left justify column text instead of justify? Um, I am. I can only think they do it because that's what some of the older stuff did. I mean, looking through the Holmes basic book, you know, everything is both right and left justified. And I will, I you know, to make a point in Pied Piper's you know, defense, I think they did their sans serif for the predominant text because, you know, that was, you know, I think avant-garde was the typeface that a lot of those older publications used. Um, so, but yeah, a lot of, you know, looking at my home's basic, you know, they're right and left justified paragraphs all throughout. So, I think they're just trying to give it that look i guess i was looking for a layout and design philosophy reason because like you know we were all taught in yeah, dent, in, dent, in dense body text you should use serif whatever your personal taste are because serif is easier to read yeah serif is easier to read and um also usually you don't want to write and left justify because then you get all these you know rivers of of um space you know meandering white space meandering through your block of text um it's it's very difficult um i mean it's not impossible if you work at it you can 
you know, eliminate some of those and still keep it, but it's a lot of extra work to do it that way. And yeah, usually you don't want to do anything that's going to 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 make that happen. So well, I didn't mean to get off on the thing. I just would have justified the text columns. But yeah, I think I think it was just to try to recreate the look of the older modules and rule books. Um, I think that's really the only the main thing going on there. Okay, my opinion. <laughs> well, back to the list. My number three. <laughs> no, no, I don't. Go back to the list. <laughs> my number three was, and I chose in particular the uses of Hydra teeth because there's a Hydra you fight at one point, and the teeth are enchanted. Where if you do certain things with them, they'll do. They'll have certain effects. And this was the main example, but in general, I found it very interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but there are a lot of things you find in this place that can have magical effects, particularly beneficial ones, but you have to do it just right. You've got to, like, you know, throw them over your left shoulder on a new moon or throw them in certain patterns or only fill it with X number of Y, y powders or that sort of thing. Uh, and some, and some that's, really cool stuff happen, but... That's what all those legend lore scroll spells are for. <laughs> Probably. Don't do it. <laughs> so that was my third. I, I, it, that's certainly a, a way of giving the pay, players a Benny and a puzzle at the same time. Of course, you know, there's the identify spells, which can ruin a good di- that sort of thing, but, you know. Plus, you know, tables. You can never have enough tables. Exactly. That's right. All the tables and charts you can eat. Exactly. All right, Jim, number two. Wow, we're going through this good. I like this format. I don't care what anybody says. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, my number uh, two, it's not like the biggest, baddest encounter. I just like the whole idea of it, is Falso the Omnipotent. Which is t- his name tells you what the encounter is going to be, and it doesn't matter because he's got a ring of false projections. So you can just disbelieve all you want. You know, some of that stuff is still going to happen. So you know, he's he's just an eighth level magic user slash twelfth level thief. But the, Rob gave him a, a whole personality that you you can run in here, and his whole battle strategy, and uh, you know things like summoning a fire elemental that has dual stats for whether you believe him or disbelieve him. That's just genius. I never thought of that before in my life. And and he's sort of the uh, the villain in Star Trek Next Generation. He's the the way he's written up. He's got a real uh, Q attitude where he's just there to bilk them out of their magic items. He he. It's like the Wizard of Oz. He sounds like he's all powerful, but he just wants your magic items to send you on your way with bad direction <laughs> in exchange for bad directions to the rest of the dungeon. That's awesome. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a villain your your PCs are guaranteed to hate for years. <laughs> and, it, and if you kill him, he's got good stuff. <laughs> If you kill him, yeah. <laughs> but you'll try really hard. <laughs> yep. Well, my number two was the art gallery. <laughs> um, just taken as a whole, as opposed to any particular bits of it. Um, I always like the idea of having a grouping of items 
that will have different effects. You know, you've got the room of pools and B1. You've got, you know, all kinds of things like that that you encounter throughout various adventures um, where, you know, you're basically, it's a crapshoot, you know, what's going to happen. Um, and plus the art gallery always reminds me of the Doctor Who episode, The Invasion of Time. <laughs> Um, where within the TARDIS, the ancillary power station was disguised as an art gallery inside the ship. So, like that, the gallery here is not exactly what it would seem upon first entering in and looking around. Um, not to mention the effects of the different pictures. You've got lots of influences from different genres. So, no matter what style of gaming you like, whether you're really big fantasy, whether you like to have a little bit of science fiction thrown into your D&D adventures. Um, there's, there's a little something for everyone at the table within the pictures and installments in the art gallery. This yeah, those- episode's Doctor Who reference brought to you by DM Liz. Oh, we're not done yet. Because <laughs> <laughs> the interior of a TARDIS disguised as an art gallery with uh, paintings that are tiny dimensional pockets could also arguably be present in Day of the Doctor, the 50th anniversary yes. episode. <laughs> with moving paintings or things that seem to be three-dimensional, and you can just jump right in. The second Doctor Who reference of this episode brought to you by DM Jim. Okay, it's your turn now, Mike. For a Doctor Who reference? <laughs> That's right. Uh, the new Doctor doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that ringing endorsement. <laughs> oh, you're not a you're fan? You're welcome. Huh? You're not a fan yet? No, I said he didn't suck. Uh, <laughs> I give him two dragons. He doesn't suck. <laughs> well, let's not get crazy here. One point five. No. <laughs> I'm more worried about the writing than the actor. I think the actor is fine. I, we'll, we'll see how the writing goes. And besides, this episode had Strax and, and Victorian England. I mean, how could that go wrong? You know. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. All right. My number two. This is a criticism. I mean, I understand it might work, have worked for the Lake Geneva guys, but I can't think of any group that I could have gamed with that would have tolerated this. And there is one point where that you um, have several levers and you pull them and certain effects happen, good or bad. You're then encouraged as a DM that if they come back to change what the levers do arbitrarily and off the cuff. So when they do it again, they get an entirely different effect. Most of my players would have crucified me (laughs) unless there was some plausible reason why they changed. Like maybe there's a big major lever they pulled in 10 rooms down. And once it's pulled down, it means all these have different effects. But I'm like, that would have got me killed. I don't know about the rest of you. Well, it is the essence of old school, though. Touch it once, you get a good thing. Touch it twice, maybe still kind of good. Touch it three times, die. You die now. <laughs> no, no. True. But well, yeah. That- but, but, no, your point, I mean, today, 2014, with the group I already play with, we would only do – I would find it challenging to run, and we would only do this with the agreement that – it's like when we sat down to play Expedition to the Barry Peaks. You know, we knew what we were in for going in. They were all like, you know, one-off characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, my beloved campaign character I've been playing for a year or two goes through this thing and dies the third room. I'd be honked. 
<laughs> yeah, this is definitely not for a long campaign setting. All right, well, number one then. You, Jim. Oh, my turn. Um, my number one with a gold star, my favorite thing in this entire adventure is uh, Room 9 called Hall of the Gods. And you cannot get any more quintessentially – I can't – we have to re-record Quintessentially. That. Yeah, that word. <laughs> Old school. <laughs> then an encounter where as a player character at 9th or 12th level, you get to fight gods. And there's a whole – there's nine pages of them. I mean that, that one encounter is nine pages of the module. Of all the gods, their special powers, what happens if you kill them, what they've got on them. I mean, that... that kill a god and loot his stuff. I mean, <laughs> and, and more cool than that? And it's even AD&D-ish where you're fighting the aspect of the gods and you haven't really killed them. So it's not like you're going up against Odin. But I mean, yeah, you know, we were young, foolish teenagers who... You know, at one point in our campaign in 1980, took out Tiamat, and that's all we talked about for a year. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A player in my group, I'll call him Todd, <laughs> <laughs> wanted to go into Gamma World with his D and D character specifically so that he could load up on stuff, come back, and hunt down Cthulhu. Nice. That sounds like yeah. a plan. <laughs> that's it's old school that's gotta say that he may so, be an elder god but i got a maser rifle that's right so did he yes <laughs> did it work well that's a very interesting question <laughs> we'll talk about it some other time that oh, might be man. an episode god slaying that might make an interesting episode hmm. or not as the case may be and uh, just one quick more note about the uh, uh, Hall of Gods, although it applies to other encounters in the thing. Every time you run into anything with spellcasting ability anywhere in this module, Rob has detailed the exact spells memorized for each individual character over mm-hmm. and over and over again. They don't do that anymore in modern modules. No, unless it's a, a quote-unquote notable baddie. You're just kind of expected to, to crank through it. All right, Liz? Okay, my number one uh, plays a little bit off of your mentioning of the empty rooms earlier, um, based specifically in the afterword, his final commentary. And he says, The absence of any encounters for a long period of time, relatively speaking, often led to a subtly rising impatience as the players endeavored to discover something, and this often put the party in less-than-prepared states for the eventual tricks, traps, and ambushes to come. And I read that, and I immediately was brought to mind our own group that we are playing in with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple of the people in the party, um, I think Preston especially, and maybe a little bit Mead too, but... We would go through several rooms that either apparently had no one in them or, you know, something very, very minor in it for what is supposed to be just this hugely powerful and dangerous evil temple. And, you know, they were starting to get antsy. You know, it's like, you know, why, why is there not anyone here? Why this is a have huge we not... cult temple. Where's the cult? Yeah, where's yeah. the cult? Where, where are the high priests? You know, where are the slaves? Where is everybody? And it was really starting to get to them. 
And so I think that's a really excellent point that he made um, that you can really rattle your players by having them go through a stretch of rooms where nobody's there. And theoretically, it would seem to make sense that there should be people there, but there's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just really struck me as being, you know, just that's truth right there. The absence of encounters, you know, that will get them far more than having a whole bunch of really dangerous stuff, you know, one after the other. It's awesome. I mean, you know, DMs yeah. don't kill players, but they do engage in psychological warfare with them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it it was getting to the point where, you know, Preston's paladin was starting to just, you know, bull into rooms, you know, whether, you know, it's like maybe we should have the thief check for traps. No, you know, because he wanted to find something. And, you know, we eventually did find something. And, but yeah, it, it's, it'll make, it'll make some of your players start to be less careful and they'll, they'll stop doing the things that they tend to do after they've gone through six rooms checking for traps listening at the door and there's nothing there and eventually they're going to just open that door up without doing anything and you know that'll wind up being the door six that Balrogs. yeah where they should <laughs> maybe you should have still done that <laughs> dude I, I did that right in front of you liz two years ago at north texas con i got a case of the antsy pants when we we're not hitting much in mike's uh, b1 and i'm like i am just gonna walk up to that chest and open it with my sword forget yeah. about picking the lock and that bought me a sucking chest wound <laughs> <laughs> free shipping yeah and i mean it's it's hard to really put tournament games in that kind of regard because as we've mentioned before you're not as attached to a pregen character that you get at the table and you're more willing to take risks with them that you wouldn't necessarily do if you were playing a favorite you know that you've had for a long time um i certainly tend to take more risks at tournament games than i do in a home campaign um because i don't feel like i have so much to lose and in a tournament, even dying can be fun. So, but yeah, you know, after a while, if nothing's happening, you you start to look for something to happen. <laughs> and if you're and if you're lucky, it does. <laughs> I've never thought of this before, Liz. This is great. I can't believe you picked that. I I, I well I might. <laughs> that was really good. I can't believe you wow, picked that, yeah. Liz. I didn't mean it that way. I just like. <laughs> yeah, I just. I might I not have if I hadn't just thought, you know, we are going through this very thing in our 2E group right now. And when I read that, I just immediately made that connection. It's like, I want to talk about that. <laughs> Increasing yeah. player agency by just boring them for two or three rooms. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they will leap into danger for you. As we have a, can attest. Anyway. All right, well, my number one, Umber Orcs. Oh, not the Umbra Hulk, but the Umbra Orcs. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Umbra Orcs, because Umbra Hulks are completely different from Umber Hulks. So, yeah. Yes. And an Umbra Hulk that gives birth to Umbra Orcs. That was just weird. The weird fire pit. (laughs) 
a weird fighting. He eats people and then gives birth to an Umbra orc. And it's just, wow, that is old school weirdness right there. It's pretty appendix. It's kind of appendix in when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd I'd originally was going to say something about, uh, you know, the, there was no, you know, my favorite was going to be the fact that there was no level setting for this. I mean, it claims 9 to 12, but, you know, obviously this thing was set up to give trouble regardless of what your level was. You know, they, he, there was no idea of level balance. Rob Kuntz says it right there in the, in the commentaries. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought the idea of the Umbra orcs just would not leave me alone. So, <laughs> just bizarre. Well, he, Almost Carcosian, really. He, he talks about it in the footnotes about the, 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 the more seasoned the players got, the harder it was to uh, sort of weird them out and surprise them. So then I had to up my game, and he apparently upped it to Umbra orcs. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's, yeah, it's, it's, well, I don't want to say too much more about it because, you know, it might mess up, but yeah, you, let's just say if you encounter this and the, and the kitties, you will not soon forget it. Now go to sleep. Now go to sleep. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wow. So how much is Blackblade asking for their copy anyway? 30 bucks. You can find thirty it, bucks. Find it in the Black Blade, Black Blade Publishing website store, and I mean it's forty-four pages plus those beautiful, you know, eleven by seventeen color maps. So it's well worth thirty bucks. The, but, Pied, uh, the Pied Piper version I checked today because we were getting ready to record. I couldn't find on eBay and Noble Knights out, but the last time I saw the Pied Piper version, it was going for about a hundred on eBay. So, well, there was only five hundred made of it, so. And Paul Stormberg probably bought 450 of them. <laughs> well, ours is 462. So, <laughs> yeah, if he bought 450, that would just leave enough left for you know us and other people to get them. But yep. <laughs> I'm just jealous because I can't afford to buy 450 yeah, copies yeah, of anything. Seed, seed, seed. All right. Well, any last comments before we head into random encounters? Talk about our favorite encounter. Nothing? No, I think I'm good. All right, let's go encounter randomly. We take what we want and leave the rest. Just like your salad bar. Nothing up must leave. Presto! You will come out no more. What? Huh? What will come out no more? Random encounters. Random encounters. We each pick our favorite encounter or magic item to talk about. And this time we'll start with Liz. Yeah. Well, You're welcome. My favorite encounter was the jouster. And Yeah, baby. You you go into the room and in the center is a mounted knight. Don't ask how the mounted knight on his giant war horse got into the middle of this room. That's not important. But he's there. And as you go in, basically, he says that you have to joust against him in order to be allowed to pass through the room. And if you win, you get to go through. If you lose, then he gets to pick whatever magic item you have that he wants, and he takes it. D20 
DMs who think your players have gotten too many magic items, pay attention. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he offers that deal up front, too. You could just cough up a magic item, but he's going to look at them all and pick the best one, right? Yeah, you know, it's like, I get to pick. You don't just give me one, you know, and... It is assumed that he somehow has the ability to know exactly what you've got, and, you know, he'll cherry pick. Yeah, um, I don't think Nistel's magic oral fool this yeah. guy. Um, anyway, I thought that was pretty cool because, well, you've got this knight on a horse in the middle of a room with no apparent rhyme or reason as to how he got there. And I must admit, I also like it. Because it reminds me of the Joust video game challenge in the book Ready Player One. Aww. Oh, yeah. It's like I read that and I immediately thought <laughs> of when he was going through Tomb of Horrors and he gets to the Joust machine and he has to play and win the game. And he has to play Aserac at Joust. Yes. Yeah. So, so I, that, I like that. <laughs> that, that, was, that, was, that was cool. I mean, I'm sure... You know, obviously the book was written after Rob Kuntz made oh, well, this, but, yeah. but I couldn't help but make that comparison, and so I had to choose the jouster. All right. Well, Jim? That was well chosen. Um, my favorite encounter, sometimes I think like a DM and sometimes I think like a player. My favorite encounter, I'm thinking like a player because I just want to kill her and take her stuff, um, is uh, Asshat the Laugh... I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Asat, the Laughing Witch, who, b- besides being the whatever level, you know, spellcaster with her spell list, has got uh, a familiar called Karuku, the small giggler, who's the little six-legged creature that I think originally came from uh, Barker's Tecamel. Yeah. Is that how you say that? I don't know. <laughs> it's a little six-legged familiar who's designed to just run by you in a flash and snatch one of your possessions and never be caught. That, and, I, and then giggle at you and annoy you. Yeah, yeah, on his way out the door. But besides the, the greatness of what that would be like as an encounter to run for the players, she's like uh, – uh, we talked about it in the pre-show uh, stuff. She's sort of like a D&D uh, version of Baba Yaga with her hut. I mean she's uh, – she runs – she flies around in this extra-dimensional cauldron that's part uh, bag of holding, part – well, I, I guess it flies. It's armored. It's an artifact. You can't kill it. And it's extra-dimensional space like a TARDIS. So if you could kill her and take it from her and somehow like use one of your legend lore scrolls to pop the control word, uh, it's got a whole little house and a whole lair inside the cauldron. Oh, yeah. And especially if you have any type of alchemical knowledge, you know, she's got a whole you know, laboratory in there, you know, just ideal for making magic items and potions and stuff. Never camp again. Yeah, well, there's really only room for one person in there. So your your companions are out of luck, but... You never camp. (laughs) You never camp again. So a thing that looks like a golden cauldron in a dungeon, but it's bigger on the inside and it flies... Your 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 tertiary Doctor Who reference supplied by. Woo-hoo. I mean, yeah. that's I mean, and that's just I mean, I I would perfectly understand if modern uh, younger generation players read this and just went, "This is insane," and didn't get past the fourth or fifth page. But uh, I mean, <laughs> you really see what those old. I mean, Rob is still. Yeah, if you're looking for a what amounts to a miniature fantasy novel, this ain't it. 
old school ain't it. But it's just dense and packed with all this creativity and these crazy, insane ideas. And I mean, I mean, Rob obviously created this in the '70s, and this is written from his campaign notes. But he still wrote this up in the last ten years. And I mean, this is old. This is like prime old school stuff. Rob's lost nothing. I'm going to be the highest dragons. We'll just get that out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, then it's time for me. The Bardiche of the Centurion. This is, well, for one thing, it plays into Rob and especially Gary Gygax's love of pole arms. I mean, how often do you run into a magical pole arm, right? <laughs> this, this will be once. And the beauty of it is, it actually gives you no pluses to hit or damage. What's However, that you say? <laughs> yeah. However, it, con- it constitutes a plus five item. When used against people or things that can only be hit by magical weapons. So it doesn't actually give you any pluses to hit or damage, but it does allow you to hit that Valor, for example, yeah. who's the five weapon to hit. It also gives you a plus one to your AC bonus for those of you, you know, using Descending Armor class and allows you to absorb 20 points of damage a turn. Or a round of combat, and you can split that up as long as it totals 20. So it's like one blow does 19 points of damage, you're good. You get hit by five magic missiles, each doing two points of damage, you're good, you know? So as long as it totals 20 per turn, per round, you're good. Sold. I'll take one. Oh, sorry. Per day. My bad. Not per turn. Sorry. But, but still, uh, still, still not a, yeah. not a bad thing to have. Points and it is does points. Yeah, and does double damage, 18 to 20 on a D20. So that's pretty good. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I like the idea of the item itself not actually giving you any pluses in and of itself, but it basically allows you to hit things that normally are real difficult to hit. I mean, you could, char- you, you could charge the planes of hell with that thing. Yeah, and I like saying Bardiche. 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 Who wouldn't? So that's Al- fine. Almost as much fun as saying monkey. Or smuck. Okay. Any honorable mentions? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why, thank you. Um, <laughs> well, I guess my honorable mention would be um, the Golden Cauldron of Asat that Jim was talking about earlier. Oh, I, um, s- I, his. I sniped no. your honorable mention. Sorry. Well, I, I, like I said, I was thinking that I had to get both a favorite encounter and a favorite magic item, so I got both. Um, so it's not really stealing because I didn't really need this one. But yeah, I thought it was super cool. Um, you know, you just sit on top of the cauldron as it zooms around, and I really, really want one. Not, not, not just because it's like a little TARDIS, but. I just think of those tiny little old crones in Japanese anime who are always floating around on little clouds or things and generally being cranky old biddies. And I aspire to cranky old biddydom one day, and having one of these would allow me to reach that exalted status even more quickly. So I just want to have a little cauldron that I can sit on top of and just fly around and be annoying on. And exert your biddyitude. Yes, I'll make you a deal. If 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 I get the golden cauldron first, you can be my companion. Woohoo! 
Start your screaming now. <laughs> Cranky old bitty companion. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we need to go at throw some dragons on this. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier when we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Products of your imagination. Da da da. Poi. Poi. And we'll start with Jim this time. That's the word I like saying. Poi. Poi. <laughs> uh, I thought about this because I knew how. Right it was, in the smile. I, I suspected how it was going to fall out. I'm going to give it. Four, but that's I'm giving it an extra point just for personal my personal enthusiasm for the genre, and I'm subtracting a point because ninety percent of the people I know couldn't couldn't run and play this without losing their minds. Liz, um, well, I'm probably I'm going to give it three point five dragons, and for much of the same reasons that Jim gave the four, um, if it had not had the cool commentary and just wonderful history you know that it gives you i probably would have only given this a middle of the road three dragons um i think the commentary you know kicks it up a notch i would use i would use some of this i would not use all of it and so you know that's not me saying this is not a good product but i personally would not use it totally as is, and there's stuff that I would throw out. Um, but you know, that being said, I think it is a a good solid product. And you know, while it may not it may not be something that I'd be willing to give four or five dragons to, you know, it's it's something you. I think everyone can find something to take away and use. You know, with this, well, yeah. You know, uh- in, in a sense, this is like an entire book that you could use in these individual encounters as the boss fight of one dungeon each. Yeah, and you know, doing it that way, you know, this will take you really far. <laughs> um, and I also think, you know, this would make a really good tournament adventure. Um, but yeah, putting it into a normal campaign with your players' beloved characters getting hosed. Yeah, they'd they'd probably form a lynch mob and and kill me. But <laughs> but yeah, there there's some good stuff here, and I think I think this would be loads of fun to run as a one off with, you know, just some throwaway characters. Okay, so three point five. Hmm. All right. Well, I return to my rank as the lowest voter. Three. I I really don't get me wrong. I like this. I think it's great. But I'm a history guy, and I feel like this is really a perfect example of the state of D&D in the mid-70s, early to mid-70s. It's got some very interesting ideas, a lot of which is hilarious to read about. But as stated earlier, I don't think I'd want to inflict them on my players. 
there are a couple of cool ideas in here that I would steal. But yeah, most of it, I just I enjoyed actually reading the commentaries as much or more than the entries. You know, just to get that feeling. Maybe Rob Kuntz needs to write a John Peterson type book. Uh, you know, how things were in Lake Geneva. That might be good. I'd read it. But as an adventure, yeah, this unless you're going in with the full full knowledge and consent of your players that they're going into a weird, wacky, old-school world, there'll be some grumbling at the table. <laughs> I mean, it's brutal. It's, you know, break marriages up brutal. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... And if you know, if you're expecting that going in, and I'm sure the guys in Lake Geneva were, um, then it could be fun. I'm sure it could be a hoot. Um, but again, I wouldn't want to play it except at a convention. And I'm glad Liz has decided to run it at next year's North Texas RPG. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Oh, well, it was worth a try. All right. Well, that gives us uh, 3.5. 3.5. 3.5. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You went higher than I thought you were. Of average. Huh? You went higher than I thought you would. Who, me? Yeah. Oh. I don't know how to take that. (laughs) (laughs) I I love this adventure. One dragon. One (laughs) dragon. It was a compliment. It's a compliment, sir. It just meant I thought you were a bigger curmudgeon than you actually are. Bah humbug. (laughs) Now get off my... But yeah, 30 bucks. If you want to know, have a feeling, direct experience of what it was like to game in those... Short of sitting down and playing with one of the TSR guys directly, this is a good way of getting that feeling, if I say so myself. <laughs> and so, the episode winds down the road once again, tromping our way into the dust to the lone horizon. And how are we headed down the road, Liz? I am running frantically from a large group of Umbra orcs (laughs) 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 because they scare me and (laughs) wielding bardishes. That's right. (laughs) Jim? I was going to be going down the road just playing with my own little personal bottle, but uh, I think maybe I better get that golden cauldron and fly by Liz and give her a ride. (laughs) Toss her a rope of climbing or something? Yeah. Well, you guys have fun down the road. I I was going to go down the road, but I figured I would be fine in my uh, belt of immolation, but I put it on wrong side out, and, well... Ow! (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'll be walking anywhere in Wiles. (laughs) Smell bacon? I think I smell bacon. (sighs) On that note... Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in episode 98. Bye-bye. See ya! Free arc! And we're gone! Yay! Ah, that had flat butt. (laughs) The Saber Diet Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. The Saber Diet theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All monsters appearing in tonight's episode are fictitious. Any resemblance
reference to copyrighted monsters, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. Save or Die.